Well, good morning, Christ Prez. That is not the fiesta spirit I was hoping for. <laughs> must have been out way too late last night. It is good to be with you. Uh, always a joy to be with my Christ Prez family. Um, for those of you um, who are new, like Joshua said, my name is Jonathan Keenan. I serve as the RUF campus minister. And I just want to make one quick announcement about that. Um, Grace Hoyme, who is now uh, gone from an intern to campus staff, um, me and her are actually welcoming another intern who's coming out from um, Tennessee to work with us. A recent graduate from TCU, her name's Heather Walters, and she's fully funded. And so she's on her way here, but she has this big thing called housing that she doesn't have yet. And so... I would ask for you to pray for Heather, uh, pray that she finds a, a, a suitable place to live with, um, you know, that's it, within her budget and uh, that she gets here. She would like to get here sometime mid-August, towards the end of August, something like that. But if you know of anyone who has a studio or looking to fill a room, please come and find me afterwards and um, so that we can get Heather to... To, who's anxiously waiting to come out here to serve as an intern with RUF. Um, yeah, but please come and find me. If you have a Bible, you can keep it open to that passage that we just read. Uh, we're going to do kind of a flyby sermon in uh, the book of Ruth, which is a, a book that you find in the Old Testament. And if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, you have the first five books of the Bible, and then Joshua, Judges, and then Ruth. And uh, we're going to kind of consider this first chapter. I came across a story a couple of years ago um, about a, a, a theologian, professor, pastor uh, at Princeton back in the early 20th century, a guy by the name of B.B. Warfield. Some of you may be familiar with the, who B.B. Warfield is, but it was a story about him and his wife who were recently married, and they took off to Germany for... Uh, like a, a mini honeymoon, but they kind of went for a, a longer stint. And while they were there, they went out for a, a hike and were overtaken by a severe thunderstorm. And that severe thunderstorm severely traumatized Bibi's um, young wife, Annie. So much so that she became incapacitated and lived as an invalid um, for the rest of her days. And the story was about how B.B. Um, Warfield gave his constant care and devotion and attention to his now incapacitated wife, young wife of uh, uh, Annie. They had no kids, uh, but it was a beautiful testament to his covenant love to his young wife. Uh, the story goes that he never spent more than two hours away from his wife at a time. He even held his classes in his parlor to be near to Annie if she ever needed him. And I thought about that, and I th that's such a beautiful picture of, of what the Bible calls a covenant, a promise, not just of, of present love, but a covenant and a promise of, of future love. And this idea of, of a of a promise of future love, of, of God binding himself to his people 
no matter the cost, even, even when life becomes crushingly hard and you are just overwhelmed and devastated by living in a fallen and broken world, you have this promise that God will be our God and we will be his people and nothing will ever come between that. And here's the thing. For many of us, suffering, heartache, sorrow, even our own choices that kind of bring about its own level of devastation can cause us to question to question whether or not we still matter in this world, whether or not we still matter to God. I mean, if you're here and you're spiritual and you've just been devastated by life, whether that's through suffering or your own just kind of wandering ways, you begin to wonder, does this steadfast love of God, this covenant promise, does it still apply to me? Where is he in the midst of devastation? The story that was just read about Ruth and Naomi is a beautiful picture of God's steadfast love showing up in the midst of utter devastation. And it begins a work of redemption and restoration. I love what we're about to learn through Naomi and Ruth. So to that end, let's pray and ask God to help us see more clearly his steadfast love through the lives of these two incredible women. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do ask as we consider this historical narrative of just utter devastation that even in the midst of it we might see very clearly your hand at work so lord may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would they be pleasing and acceptable in your sight O lord our rock and our redeemer for we pray this jesus in your name amen Verse 1 of Ruth kind of gives you the, you know, if you want to look at it like a, a camera, zooms the camera way out, kind of gives you the whole context of the book. It's in the time of Judges. Um, the time of the Judges in Israel's history is one of the darkest parts of Israel's history. Um, the great refrain of the book of Judges was this, there was no king in the land, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And then verse 2, it zooms it way in to this family in Bethlehem, Elimelech and Naomi and their two sons, living in the land where there is no king and absolute anarchy, where everyone literally is just doing whatever they want. And what you're immediately confronted with in these first five verses is just devastation. Elimelech takes, you know, he's married to Naomi, and there's this famine that's in the land. There's no bread in the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. There's 
no food. And so Elimelech says, we've got to find food. So he goes to Moab. And Moab is the enemy territory. It's the arched enemy of Israel. He takes his young family to go and find bread, which makes perfect sense. And then Elimelech dies. And so now you have Naomi living as a widow in a foreign land with her two sons. And then we learn that her two sons take Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah. And there was this very curious detail. I don't know if you caught it, but it said after Elimelech died and their two sons took the Moabite wives, it says they stayed there 10 more years. And that greatly suggests that Orpah and Ruth were barren, unable to have kids, which was a big deal in the ancient Near Eastern culture. So Naomi, now a widow, living in a foreign land, is now unable to have any kind of lineage attached to her. So there's no protection, no inheritance, no security. And the devastation keeps coming. Because it says that her two sons now have died. And so now you're left with Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth with utterly nothing. No security, no protection, no prospects for a future. That is the backdrop against where this story grabs our attention and where we find, at least where I I hope we'll see, through the lens of Naomi and Ruth, what faith, hope, and love looks like. Where God's steadfast love shows up in the aftermath of utter devastation. And so this morning, you can look at it like this. I have one point aimed in two ways or two points aimed in one way. I I just want to look at, at the hope of God's grace for Naomi and the hope of God's grace for Ruth. And then so what? So the hope of God's grace for Naomi and the hope of God's grace for Ruth. First, the hope of God's grace for Naomi. Throughout the verses that we read, you just, you hear the cry of Naomi's soul. She's just devastated. And I I think we need to just pause and, and take note of the fact that Naomi just lost her husband and and two sons. And that is overwhelming on on anyone to have one of those things happen, yet alone all of that to happen. And the cry of her soul is this, this lament, and I don't know if you caught it, but in verse 13 she says to Orpah and to Ruth, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. This is her prayer. This is her lament. This is her cry. And what I want you to see is in the devastation that Naomi is experiencing, and right as she prays this or this lament comes out of her mouth, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, the Lord hears her cry, and in verse 14, what do we see? Look with me at verse 14. It says that she kissed Orpah, but what did Ruth do? Ruth clung to her. 
Naomi says, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me and Ruth's hand is clinging right to the devastation that Naomi is experiencing. And that word for cling, it's the same Hebrew word that you find in Genesis 2. Where it says that man, it's not good that man shall be alone. Therefore he shall leave his father and mother and the man shall what? Hold fast to his wife, cling to his wife. And what I want you to see is that in the cry of Naomi's soul, the Lord in his steadfast love answers it immediately through Ruth. Ruth clings to Naomi in her devastation. Ruth literally becomes a visible display of the gospel in Naomi's life. How do we see that? Did you catch the vow that Ruth made to Naomi? You see what she said. As she's clinging to her, she makes this vow. She says, where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I lodge. Where your people are, those are going to be my people. Your God's going to be my God. Where you're buried, I'm buried. And then guess what she says at the end? She says, if none of this, if I don't keep any of this, let death be the one that, that parts us. In other words, Ruth comes as she's clinging to Naomi, promising this steadfast love. She says, she basically pronounces a curse on herself saying, if I don't fulfill this, may it be so that I die. Ruth is literally sacrificing herself for Naomi in order to redeem and restore her. Ruth is a living picture of the gospel. I don't know if you have ever come across the podcast Modern Love it's one of my favorite podcasts. Um, a couple of years ago, there's this wonderful story about um, a woman who's married, and she wakes up. This isn't the wonderful part. Um, she wakes up to the FBI raiding her home, not the, uh, the wake-up call that you would want. And she's arrested along with her husband, and they're charged with money laundering, fraud, and embezzlement. Now, this woman had never so much as gotten a parking ticket. She has no idea what's going on. And all of a sudden, they find out that it was the husband who had stolen her identity and begun doing all of his criminal activity in her name. And so for 90 days, um, she has this federal charge held against her. And in that 90 days, she lost absolutely everything. She lost her home, her marriage. She ended up having to move back home with her family. And she says in the podcast, she goes, it was too devastating for me to move back into my childhood bedroom because I felt so much shame being a 28-year-old having to move back in with my parents that I ended up sleeping on the couch. But next to her, on the other couch, her mom for 90 days slept beside her. And this is what was so remarkable is that her mom began to take on some of the pain that her daughter had been going through. So much so that the, that the mom became physically ill to where she needed to go and get treatment. She went to go 
see a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist sat her down and said, listen, you've got to stop making this about you. This is about your daughter. Of course, we're all like, yeah, of course. But I want you to hear how the daughter interpreted what was happening with her mom. This is what her daughter said. My mother making this about her was actually saving me. To know that someone loved me so much, was willing to feel my pain so intensely that it kept her on the laundry floor, on, on the laundry room floor for a day, made me feel encased in a bubble of protection. I began to wonder if sadness was this finite thing, a big black mess of which there was only so much in the world. If so, my mother was sharing it with me so that I did not have to bear the full weight. Devastation. Being healed and redeemed and restored through the unconditional love of another. What's so great about Ruth clinging to Naomi and the vow that she makes is that it actually mirrors the vow that God makes to his people Israel and to you and me. Where God says, and this is the thematic promise from Genesis all the way to the end, where God looks at his people and says, I will be your God and you will be my people no matter the cost. And that promise, that covenant that God makes with his people is ultimately fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus, who is God, became a man to take on all our pain, all our sin in himself as a living sacrifice for you and for me. So that promise where we will be God's people forever and ever will come true. Ruth is a living picture of the gospel in the life of Naomi. And what's so remarkable is that at the end of the book of Ruth, all the Israelite women who early on were kind of suspicious of Ruth because she's a Moabite, which we'll look at in a second, at the very end of the book, they praise her. Basically, basically suggesting that she's the, one of the greatest women in all of Israel's history for how she loved Naomi. Because of how she became the hands and feet of Jesus and the devastation of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And here's the thing. When you go and sit with your friend who's utterly devastated either by some just really tragic news or just by decisions they've made that have caused them all kinds of pain and they're suffering the consequences. When you go and sit with them and weep with them or when you know that there's someone in your sphere who's lonely and maybe on the verge of despair, and when you invite them in to be known and loved and cared for, do you know what you're doing? 
You're displaying the very steadfast love of God to a hurting and broken world. You're becoming the hands and feet of Jesus, offering healing and restoration. In other words, God answers Naomi's cry through the instrument of Ruth's presence and devotion. And he does the same with you and me. See, that's the hope of grace for Naomi. What about the hope of of God's grace for Ruth? Well, we didn't read all of this, and I would encourage you to go and read. But it says down in verse verse 22 that Naomi and, and Ruth decide to go on back to Bethlehem. They heard there's bread back in the, the house of bread. And they head back. And the narrator does this seven other times. But he says that Naomi and Ruth, the Moabite, head back to Bethlehem. Seven other times the narrator calls Ruth the Moabite. The Moabite from the land of Moab. As if Moabite wasn't you know, enough information. It's very redundant. You kind of like, we get it. She's from Moab. She's a Moabite. What's the big deal? And I think Scripture is kind of pushing us to see something very remarkable. Because the Moabites were descended from Lot. And you can read about this. Maybe not today. Today may not be a great day to go and read about this. But Genesis 19. You can read about Lot who, through a drunken orgy, impregnates his two daughters. And his two daughters give birth to two sons. And one of those sons is named Moab, who becomes the father of the Moabites, who becomes one of the arched enemies of Israel. Who they worship the god Chemosh, who's often worshipped through human sacrifice. So Ruth, the Moabite, that's her lineage, that's her people. And I want you to see what's happening here. That God's grace, the hope of God's grace for Ruth is that he literally reaches into the heart of a pagan land, pulls out a barren widow from an incestuous lineage, brings her into the promised land, and not only that, brings her into the very family of God, and not only that says, through now your new lineage... You're going to become the mother of Jesus, the one who's going to deal ultimately with our greatest enemy, sin and death. How's that for hope and grace? Literally, God reaches in to pagan lands and pulls out Ruth. You see, Ruth's going to meet Boaz in a couple chapters, and they're going to have a son. His son's going to be named Obed, and Obed's going to have a son, and he's going to name him Jesse. And Jesse's going to have a son named David, who's going to be the king. And out of that king is going to come the ultimate king, who's going to bring about the redemption, the restoration that we all long for. It's unbelievable, God's grace to Ruth. And here's what's remarkable is that when God reaches in and pulls Ruth out and brings her into the promised land, 
when she sees God's unbelievable commitment to her, you know what it does? It gives her a faith of unwavering commitment to him. This is what's so remarkable about Ruth, is that literally she gave up everything to follow the Lord. Think about it. You actually see this in the text. Naomi's telling Ruth, go back to Moab. It is more practical for you to go back to your family, to go back to your ethnic and religious roots, to find a husband so that you can have kids and build up security and prosperity, and you'll be near family. That is the most logical and practical thing. And yet Ruth literally leaves empty-handed, leaves her family, her ethnic, her religious roots behind against the advice of Naomi, her mother-in-law, so she's immediately disobedient, right, to follow the Lord into Bethlehem. It is unbelievable the faith that Ruth displays. I would put it on par against anyone in all of the Bible. Her unwavering commitment to the Lord. You see, that is the hope of God's grace to Ruth. So what do we do with that? Well, two things and I'll close. The first is this. God's grace always clings to you. No matter where your feet may take you. And no matter what devastation lies ahead of you. What do I mean? There's no amount of darkness that can snuff out the light of God's grace. God's grace always clings to you in your suffering and your sin. And you need to believe the good news this morning that God's grace holds you fast. So if you're here this morning and you're just riddled with addiction and despair, you need to know the good news that God's grace can handle your addiction. His grace clings to you. College students, potential college students, you need to know that when you leave home, that God's grace will always follow you. Because his steadfast love is better than life. And you need to know that as you leave. If you're here and you're not convinced of the truth claims of Christianity, and you're curious, like, I wonder if, if I matter to this God. Look at Ruth. God reached into a pagan, incestuous land and says, you're going to be the mother of of my son who's going to redeem the whole world. You matter to him immensely. He reached into the despair of Naomi and through the love and commitment of Ruth displayed his loving kindness. You matter to this God. His grace always clings to you. But his grace also cultivates in us faith. 
You see, Ruth's faith was an act of faith. It wasn't an abstraction. It wasn't some esoteric, ethereal thing. It was real and active. It was utterly counterintuitive. She left everything behind to follow the Lord. So for some of you this morning, you need to ask yourself the question, what are the counterintuitive things in my life that I need to let go of and follow Jesus? Or let me put it like this. Are there places in your life where you have just put a massive sign in front of your heart that says to God, no trespassing? I mean, we all have these places, right? Lord, I, I think I'm okay here, but you can't touch my marriage. Or my finances. Or my time commitments. Are there places in your life right now where you have told God that's off limits? Because you see what Ruth teaches us is that she gave up everything and trusted the Lord to an uncertain future that she had. And what she found actually is that she saw that God was more committed to her than she ever would be to him. And you know what that does when you believe that? It actually fuels your own commitment to him. When you experience his steadfast love, his never-ending, always and forever love, it actually fuels your own commitment and obedience to him. And it pushes you to become more like Christ. God's grace clings and it cultivates a living and active faith. Let me close with this. I recently finished the, the Netflix series, uh, When They See Us. Some of you may or may not be familiar with it, but it's a, a four-part series on the Central Park Five. Um, these were the five African-American boys in the late 80s in, in New York City and Central Park who were accused of a crime that they did not commit. They spent anywhere from five to 12 years in prison. And there was this, uh, I think it was episode two, uh, this wonderful scene that just really captivated me where Kevin Richardson, he's one of the youngest of the boys, is in prison and his mom comes to visit him. And, and Kevin tells his mom, he says, Mom, I'm having this nightmare where I, I, I just feel that everyone in the world hates me. She reaches out, she grabs his hand, and she says, she says, son, I have loved you enough to deal with everybody's hate. She says, I am with you in this. You are not alone. And she says, all I do all day long is love you. She says, you cry, I cry. You mad, I'm mad. You scared, I'm scared. You free, I'm free. She says, you and me always. And I thought, wow. Friends, that right there is the great promise and hope that Jesus gives you today. 
no matter the devastation that you've experienced, I want you to hear this. Jesus comes and he says to you this morning, all I do all day long is love you. You and me always. Consider that this morning an invitation to come. And to believe the good news that Jesus and his steadfast love is better than life. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do ask that as we look at the how crushingly difficult life is. The sorrow, heartache, the choices that we make that lead to all kinds of sin and rebellion. Lord, we need to know in the midst that you're there and that your grace clings to us. And we need to believe the hope that you don't leave us as you find us, but that you actually are coming back to redeem and restore all things. And so, may you give us that blessed assurance of your steadfast love this morning. For we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.